Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Thank you for joining us on Easy's Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter in South Florida and the people and organizations that are making a difference. School shootings continue to be an issue of concern, not only to South Floridians, to the entire country, but it's particularly hurtful here, even three years after the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I don't think anyone can truly understand the fear and the grief until it happens in your community or to someone you know. Just last week, two middle school students were arrested on a tip that they were planning a mass shooting after studying the 1999 shooting at Columbine, the first of its kind, uh, that really changed our world. This was local, and someone reported them. They were arrested. Just this week in Memphis, Tennessee, a shooter went on a rampage at a grocery store injuring 15 people. And I know it's not a school, but the similarity is that it's a place where we expect to feel safe, just as we used to feel that schools were a safe place for our children. So we have a long way to go to turn things around. However, there is a group called Stand with Parkland that is constantly working to make the changes we need to keep our children and others safe. And I am very happy to welcome to the program the president of Stand with Parkland, Tony Montalto. Thank you for taking time out from what I'm sure is a busy schedule to talk to us. Well, thanks for having me, Ellen. We met at a Girl Scouts luncheon and your daughter, Gina, who was one of the students taken on February 14th, 2018, was a Girl Scout. And it was a beautiful tribute. And what you do with Stan with Parkland just impressed me so much. And as the parent of one of the 14 young people and three adults killed on February 14th, 2018, what was your life like? What were you doing on February 13th before everything changed? Before the tragedy that affected my family, I was lucky enough to be the loving dad to uh, two wonderful kids, Gina Rose and uh, Anthony. And my wife, Jennifer, and I love spending time with our kids. And uh, she was a homemaker who volunteered in the schools and had many activities with our children. And I was an airline pilot for a major airline for 30 years. Do you still do that? Or is your time pretty much consumed with Stand With Parkland now? I've chosen to continue my work, the job I always wanted to do. I wasn't going to let the shooter take that away from me. Everyone was impacted ongoing, but you've and several other parents of victims founded the nonprofit organization Stand with Parkland as a way to turn such a horrible incident into something that can make positive change. What is the organization's mission? Stand with Parkland was formed by all the families who lost someone that terrible day. The mission is to help other families avoid the tragedy that affected our families and our community. Stand with Parkland is a national organization representing American families. We're committed to advocating for practical public safety reforms focused on the safety of our children at school, improved mental health support, and responsible firearms ownership. 
Personal responsibility and a desire for change are paramount in this effort. And it's the people that are involved at all levels that can help make these goals a reality. Violence in our schools affects everyone. It's an American epidemic, and it's time we all come together to do something about it. Amen. Well, you have really made amazing progress in a short period of time. Let's talk about some of your accomplishments. Stanworth Parkland, uh, even before we were Stanworth Parkland, when our families banded together, we helped get the uh, Marjorie Stillman Douglas High School Public Safety Act passed here in Florida. That was a great point of political courage shortly after the shooting, where we saw the legislators in Tallahassee for the state of Florida work across the aisle and come together to find things that support the three pillars that became so important to stand with Parkland. That bill provided money for securing the campus. It provided additional funds to help get mental health counselors in more schools. And it also had the most significant firearms law changes in Florida that had occurred in the last 20 years, enacting a three-day waiting period, requiring someone to be the age 21 to buy a firearm, and also, uh, most importantly, the introduction of red flag or extreme risk protection orders to our state. What are those specifically? Can you explain what a red flag order is? Sure. It's a red flag law or an extreme risk protection order. And what that does is if somebody's been deemed to be a threat to themselves or others, their firearms are removed from their possession. And that works differently in different states. Here in Florida, we've ensured that there's due process. When a complaint is made, it goes to the law enforcement. Law enforcement investigates. Then they go to the judge. The judge gives the order. The weapons are removed. Then in the next 14 days, there must be a hearing for the individual who's subject to that order. If that person is deemed to be a threat to themselves or others, even after that hearing, then they extend the order and make it, uh, quote, permanent, but permanency only goes out a year. Um, If after that trial they're found not to be in that position, the firearms are returned. So there's great benefits to having one, that kind of law in your state. There's the downside is that maybe somebody loses a hunting season. But without that law, we saw law enforcement have over 40 interactions with the shooter in Parkland, and they were unable to do anything about it. Right. I remember all of the conversation about how there were reports about him so many times, and they talked about how the FBI knew about him, but it didn't apparently spark their attention enough for them to take action. But Since then, you've now met with two presidential administrations on this issue, the Trump administration and the Biden administration just recently. What was that experience like? And do you think that you'll be able to get more of the changes that we need? Can we get the cooperation and the funding? I think it's important to realize, uh, for everyone to realize that there's good people on both sides of the aisle. We had a a good working relationship with the uh, Trump administration. We uh, saw them execute the uh, Federal Commission report on school safety, which came out in December of 2018. We also had them help us construct uh, the Federal Clearinghouse of uh, Best Practices for School Safety. That can be accessed through schoolsafety.gov. That brought together the Departments of Education, Health and Human Services, Department of Justice, and Department of Homeland Security to create a one-stop shop for school safety. One of our members came up with the idea. The rest of us uh, were heavily involved in the creation of the clearinghouse and the website. We were involved in beta testing because Stanworth Parkland has a wide array of families as founders that have differing skills. We had some software people, we've had uh, school administrators, we have uh, school teachers, we have uh, executives in the finance field. 
and all of us bring a little something to the table. And we were able to add that to this all of government approach in schoolsafety.gov. We also saw the Trump administration enact uh, a ban on bump stocks, which made the uh, Las Vegas shooting so lethal. And uh, we were also able to pass the uh, Stop School Violence Act in spring of 2018, which provided dollars uh, to secure the campuses, as well as enact behavioral threat assessment teams. And we also had the Fix Nix Act, which closed some loopholes in the federal background check system. Ah, that's Um, great. Now, uh, also, we've been uh, now speaking with the Biden administration. And, you know, they've been in office only a few months, so we're working with them. We spoke with them just this past week, and we talked about the necessity of helping other states pass red flag laws. We talked with them about the importance of funding schoolsafety.gov. We talked about some issues regarding mental health in schools and finding ways to get more mental health professionals in the schools. So that's what we've done pretty much on the, on the federal level. Here at the state, we've seen continued support in Tallahassee. Last year, both the Democrats and the Republicans worked together in the House and the Senate to pass unanimously in both houses SB 590, the school safety bill. So that school safety bill did many things, but most importantly to us, it provided a mechanism that now requires school districts to warn parents and staff members if there's a threat to the school or to a school activity or school transportation. This was uh, vitally important because, sadly, the families of the staff members and the students in Parkland had no warning. Right. So COVID-19 has been the big topic of discussion as school started again this year. But you have another topic of discussion for the beginning of any school year. Stand with Parkland has five questions to ask. Can you tell us about them and If the answer to any of them is no, what can a parent do to change that? Well, although COVID has taken up the majority of the news, and and rightfully so, it it is a threat, the regular threats that existed prior to COVID coming into the world still affect our schools. So we came together with uh, some experts and we came up with the five questions every family should ask as the school year begins. And I'll just run through them real quick. Does your school have an active shooter policy? Next is, does the school train all staff members for active shooter scenarios? The next is, do the schools have a single point of entry, access control, during school hours? The next is, is there a way students and staff can report threats? And finally, how are parents notified when a threat has been made to the school? We think these are starter questions. If you go to our website at standwithparkland.org, and uh, go to our five questions, click on that, sign up for our email list uh, free of charge. We're going to send you the answers you should expect here. We need to have parents be involved, and those involved parents will engage with the administration and with the school districts to help make sure their students are safe. That is the goal. And your website, standwithparkland.org, has excellent information on everything that has to do with this, including the page where you can contact your representatives and express your viewpoints and offer suggestions on how to improve this situation. Have you gotten pushback from pro-gun people? Well, Stand With Parkland has a different view on this than uh, most groups who've suffered such a tragedy. We've tried to be uh, uniquely inclusive and nonpartisan 
And we realized that securing the campus, better mental health screening and support programs, and responsible firearms ownership are three things that failed our families that day. That's why we support all three, because they all push and pull on the safety of our children and our teachers in school. There's no one answer. No, but Uh, the key word you said there is responsible ownership. One of the things we've uh, tried to impress upon people is the need for safe storage. Many people don't know what that means. So we have a link on our resources page that'll describe how to store your weapon safely. And the short answer is someplace where it's not going to be accessible by children and where it's not likely to be stolen. If you you just start there with those two points, we'll we'll all be a lot safer. But there's more to it. And we have more information at, uh, again, standwithparkland.org on our resources page about that. How can people help you? In addition to signing up for your newsletter, what can people do to move your mission forward? I think we can start realizing that there's more that brings us together on this issue than divides us. Everybody spends too much time looking at the politics of the left and the right, and very few people are willing to come to the middle to listen to their neighbors and their friends, to understand that there are, again, differing degrees of things that we agree on. So let's focus on the things we agree on, make the suggestions, and then come with with a way to enact policies and laws that make our children and our staff safer. Um, So that would be the first part. The next part always is keeping informed with what we have going on. We have a tool when we have special missions coming down the pike that we uh, put out the email that you spoke about. There's different emails and we make it very easy for you. You get on, you put your information in, it automatically populates about who it should go to. And if you like what you read, please send it to them because these are the things that are pragmatic, that are important for all of us come together in a bipartisan manner to increase the safety of our students and our teachers at school. Yeah. Also, as with anything else, donations certainly help because to get this off the ground, the family self-funded it. And um, again, any small donation, if anybody gives a little, then nobody's got to give a lot. Right. Not that we won't take a lot, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it costs money to, to go to Washington, D.C. and talk to our leaders. And I particularly love your focus on thinking of people as friends and neighbors, not thinking of them as political party members, and on working in a bipartisan way with our elected leaders. I think that makes a huge difference, and it's why you've been so successful. Well, I think that there's a lot of good people around this country working to help us solve this. One of the best ways to keep everyone safe is something that the uh, U.S. Secret Service and their National Threat Assessment Center does, and that's called a behavioral threat assessment. Sadly, we were connected with them after the tragedy, but through our interaction with them, we've been able to tour the nation, to tell our sad stories, and train over 5,000 mental health professionals, law enforcement professionals, and school professionals on how to execute properly a behavioral threat assessment. And the purpose of this is not to incarcerate. The purpose of this is to identify someone who needs help and then get them the help they need before they resort to violence. Right. And it's best done through a multidisciplinary team that includes at a minimum school professionals, law enforcement, and mental health professionals to bring everybody together to start identifying the problems and then find the best course of treatment. 
So once somebody's identified, the next point is the follow-up treatment. Now that follow-up treatment can be tricky, especially here in Florida. We know our mental health system has a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. We were happy to see enacted last year the fact that there's going to be a panel of professionals that are going to analyze the mental health system here in Florida and make recommendations for change. One of the things that STEM with Parkland has come up with and we'll be promoting this year in the legislative session that's upcoming is the idea of a single person, a point person in charge of coordinating mental health within our school districts. Mm. This would be vital to make sure that the individuals, especially those that have gone through a behavioral threat assessment, are managed properly and getting the help they need and on a track to make them you know, good students and good citizens. That's the goal. But right now, we've got a lot of disjointedness within the system. Sadly, back to our shooting, it shows how uh, ineffective the current system was. The shooter was getting help from a lot of places, but nobody was really coordinating that to make sure it was all moving in the right direction. That's why we think it's so important that each school district have a single person that's in charge of just that. If someone wants to contact you, wants information, wants to volunteer, participate, Let's have a website, a Facebook page, and a phone number. Our website is standwithparkland.org. You can contact us through the email info at standwithparkland.org. Our uh, Facebook page is Stand With Parkland, and we also have a uh, YouTube channel that has many of the interviews that all our families have done. And I'll just say that the founding families of Stand With Parkland have paid a terrible price for any progress. Yeah. So please don't take it for granted. Get involved in your children's safety. And if you have any questions, we're here to help you. I thank you. Standwithparkland.org. Tony Montalto, president. You're making great strides, and I know you will continue to, and we will talk again as we see how things are going. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Ellen. We appreciate you helping us get the word out. Absolutely. For our next segment of Easy's Community Focus, we know that immigration is a very important issue in South Florida and someone who's had a huge impact, the CEO and president of Hispanic Unity. I am very happy to welcome one of our Hispanic Heritage Month honorees, Josie Bacallao. It's so great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Likewise, Ellen. Delighted to join you and thank you. Well, I should be congratulating you because I understand that after nearly two decades as a board member and then as president CEO, you're retiring at the end of this year. I am indeed. We're going through a transition year this year. Well, you have to have seen in the time that you've been there so many transitions with administration changes and then they change the laws. Did you come here from Cuba? Were you born in Cuba? Or- I did. I actually was born in Cuba. And it's actually an interesting story because my father was part of the Bay of Pigs and he was actually incarcerated. Oh, my God. And the United States cut a deal with Castro in exchange for baby food and medicine. He allowed the families of the Bay of Pigs prisoners to leave the country. So on December 27th, 1962, we arrived in Miami on a freighter called the African Pilot. So you've seen all of the changes. That was the first round of immigration, really big immigration from Cuba before 1980 when we had the Mariel boat lift. What's it been like for you to see the changes in people's perceptions of immigrants and their welcoming and the different kinds of immigrants that we have from South America and from Cuba and the other islands? What's it like for you living through all of that? 
It's been fascinating, and it's actually been tumultuous and inspiring. Our organization works throughout South Florida with a focus in Broward County, and the county has grown now to a Latino population of 31%. So they are between 580,000 to 600,000 Hispanics in Broward County. And of course, Miami-Dade, 70% of the population there is Hispanic. And it's been amazing when we had, every time there were some really critical issues, and we're still seeing it today, but specific countries with specific issues, you saw the very large wave coming from Colombia when the FARC, before they had their peace plan, we saw tremendous numbers coming from Peru, now from Central America. And at the end of the day, what drives people might vary, but it really comes down to freedom and opportunity. And it could be freedom could be civil liberties. It could be freedom from being killed, (laughs) freedom uh, in the sense of safety and an opportunity that really means people that are looking for a way to really have a life that is successful for themselves and their children. And so those two things have really driven every wave of of immigrants. We now serve immigrants from 30 different countries at our organization. And we are now even serving immigrants in non-Spanish language, including Haitian Creole. So our organization has continued to adapt and change. And we really are serving the very diverse communities that now make up South Florida, not just Latinos. Originally, what's the mission of Hispanic Unity? We are really dedicated to helping families, not only immigrants, but others. And that others is really the diversity of South Florida, become self-sufficient, become productive and civically engaged. So the work that we do encompasses education, encompasses what we call economic development, jobs, small businesses, et cetera, and civic engagement, which is helping individuals go through the whole naturalization process, but with also some support on the immigration side. So it's a very holistic, comprehensive mission that works with children, with families, across the whole lengthy process of of what I would call integration that could last 10, 15, 20 years. That is just amazing to me that it can take that long. Do other people see you primarily as a path to citizenship? What is their perception, the public's perception of Hispanic unity? It really depends who's looking at us. We've been very fortunate to have funders that really understand and appreciate what we're trying to do is help families stand on their feet. And we do that in many different ways. For clients, we're a lifeline for the community. We are seen as the bridge of newcomers, what we call new Americans, and helping them become Americans, however each of us defines that. But in between all that, however we define it, there is a process that includes learning English, learning all sorts of systems, how to navigate the education system, how to navigate the economic system. And we teach them about how to pay taxes. We have 
one of the largest programs in Florida that actually helps them prepare taxes. So we want to make them productive in the sense that they are working or they have small businesses or they've gone to school because their success ultimately is not only success defined at the family level, but it's success defined at the community level. Yeah. I think many of us don't understand what the situation is like in other countries. We see bits and pieces on TV, but we don't really get the full story. And we may not realize, like you said, your father was imprisoned because of the Bay of Pigs. And we had the rush of people coming from Venezuela when they had a change in government. And suddenly people who had been doing very well were out of a home on the street begging for food. So... I think we forget that people from other places are still people and are just as intelligent as any of us and just need to be acclimated and learn the language. And like you say, learn how to do the basic things like taxes. So I often think that we (laughs) who were born here should go through these citizenship and naturalization and civic engagement classes. We need more of that. And I feel like we've lost some of that teaching in our school curricula. It's actually really interesting that you say that one of the things that has inspired me and I think inspires most of the individuals that are affiliated or associated with our organization is seeing the values that immigrants bring to this country. Yes. And what amazes many individuals is once they sit down with them is to realize that they're American values. Yes. The number one value they have among all others is family. I knew it. Yep. Absolutely. They they deeply value community, hard work, and they believe that it's really not where you were born that's important, but the life that you create. I love that. And who you become. And so that inspires us every day because these are individuals that are in many ways contributing to the richness of our American values soil. (laughs) I mean, they reinvigorate us because they come with those values that in some ways, some of us have become maybe a little cynical. They don't believe in the American dream. My goodness, Ellen, they believe in the American dream. They fight every day for the American dream for themselves and their children. That is so heartening. So, yeah, it is so inspirational. And our job is really to be their guides in that process and they determine where they want to go. And that's how we approach the work with a great deal of dignity and respect. Is there one story in all the time that you've been with Hispanic Unity that stands out as either a particular success story or something that moved you? One of those that you'll never forget. And I still haven't. And it's funny because the stories I keep coming back to are three families, actually, that I met in, in the early days, but one particular family. All three still bring tears to my eyes, but one family, because it encompassed the whole family. It was such a powerful story. I met him when he was already, we actually ended up hiring him at at the organization. My first meeting with him, I discovered that he, and I get choked up, he was a medical doctor in Colombia. He was actually administrator of five hospitals and a surgeon. His wife was an attorney in Colombia and they had attempted to kidnap him several times. And the turning point for him and his family was 
the one day that he discovered that his five-year-old son had a bat underneath his pillow Uh. and it was to protect them in case they were abducted. I believe it was either that day or the next day. They were on a plane, the proverbial immigrant, money in their pockets, nothing else, because they would signal that they would be leaving and they didn't want to do that. They arrived in the U.S. They eventually applied for asylum. And when we first met him, his wife was cleaning homes, you know, just like my mom and I did. And he was delivering pizzas with his son, deeply depressed. And we began a journey with him and he began learning English and we accelerated that. We eventually hired him. We encouraged him to return to school and he's now a physician's assistant. His wife is now an entrepreneur. His daughter is an attorney and his daughter and his son both went through our after school and summer programming. They learned about taxes from us and they had their taxes prepared for us. His son eventually received a full scholarship at Stanford and wow. is working on his PhD on nanotechnology. Oh my goodness. Wow. So, so we it was just a beautiful journey for them and how they became US citizens through our program as well. So many of the families that we serve, to your earlier point, may not know the language. But many in Broward County, more than any other county in Florida, has immigrants with the highest levels of education. Many, many, many have very high degrees and are professionals. And for them, it's particularly poignant of where they have to start. Yeah, Um, yeah. Like you say, someone with a medical degree may end up delivering pizzas because of a language barrier or a citizenship barrier. And the fact that you at Hispanic Unity can work with these people and help them regain the level of life that they were living in their prior country, where they can use their education and their intelligence and their talents the way they should be using them. That is such a gift to people. And I am contributing. And contributing to our country, not only in terms of the taxes they're paying, but he's saving lives now as a physician's assistant because he can do so much more than a physician's assistant can do. And culturally, too. I mean, what people from other countries bring culturally, that's why South Florida is so interesting, because we do have people from different cultures, and and there's all sorts of different foods that we can try, and music and dance, and all of that makes our lives richer. They do. They do. What are you going to do for retirement? I am uh, going to remain very involved. I happen to be on a national Unidos U.S. board, which is the largest Latino advocacy organization in the country. And we're hoping to do a lot of work with them and continuing my work at the local, state and national level, advancing the immigrant cause. It's who I am and it's what drew me to Hispanic Unity 23 years ago as a board member and kept me there for 18 years as its CEO. And it's still important work and there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, you've done amazing things. You know, as you said, you now work with people from 30 different countries. You started out with, you know, a few dozen staff members. Now there's more than 200, more than 16,000 clients. So 20 years is a very long time and there are a lot of changes. And I know that you will leave the organization in very good hands. 
When the time comes, I will happily welcome your successor, Felipe Pinzon, to come and talk about his vision for Hispanic and, unity. And his is a wonderful story. He was originally a client. Oh, my he, gosh. He did not know how to speak English when he first came to the organization. He came to us as a client. And he's been a colleague for the last 18 years with me. He's actually preceded me at the organization. And I am so delighted because the board of directors were so prescient in that seven years ago, we created a succession plan. And so we're implementing a transition plan tied to that succession plan. This year, Felipe is our executive director, and we'll be taking over as CEO in January of next year, which happens to be our 40th anniversary. And he is one of the best colleagues I have ever worked with. His demeanor is phenomenal. He's strategic. He is kind. He is smart. And he will just really continue to maintain the, the reputation and position, which he helped create for our organization in South Florida. So you will enjoy working with him, Alan. Outstanding. As I have enjoyed working with you, Josie Bacayao, President CEO of Hispanic Unity and one of our honorees during Hispanic Heritage Month. I thank you for all you've done for our community and congratulations on a successful run at Hispanic Unity. Thank you for the opportunity to share with you, Ellen, today. It has been a pleasure. If you have any questions about today's program or would like to suggest a topic, you can email me at ellen at easy93.com. Join me again next Sunday for an all-new edition of Easy's Community Focus. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.